You are listening to Jewish Tech Meetup, a Jcast Network podcast. This podcast is a recording of the New York City Jewish Tech Meetup that took place on Thursday, August 18th, 2011. The speaker that evening was Micah Sifri, co-founder and executive editor of the Personal Democracy Forum, as well as the author of WikiLeaks and the Age of Transparency. The New York City Jewish Tech Meetup is made possible with the help of Makom Chadash, Repair the World, and Open Source Judaism. For more information and to find out about future live events, please visit meetup.com slash jtech-nyc. So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Jewish Tech Meetup. I'm Dan Saratsky, founder and organizer. Uh, welcome, one and all. Uh, Jewish Tech Meetup uh, was founded with the goal of trying to bring together Jews who work in technology, either inside or outside of the Jewish community, to meet and greet, get to know each other, and uh, possibly find avenues for collaboration uh, with one another. Um, particularly, we have an interest in trying to bring um, skilled technology professionals uh, who uh, have an interest in uh, trying to address some of the issues uh, facing the Jewish nonprofit community uh, to the table to try to address those. Uh, we're hoping uh, to do a hackathon later in the year, uh, bring folks together to maybe try to really directly address some of the, the technological needs of the community. Uh, and uh, we are doing a monthly meetup featuring a guest speaker every month uh, and uh, thinking about perhaps some other kind of activities uh, throughout the year as well. Uh, totally open to suggestions uh, for speakers, for uh, other events. Uh, so if you have any thoughts or ideas, always feel free to just you know, come up and share them. Uh, tonight, our speaker is Mika Sifri. Uh, Mika is the director, the co-founder co and co-director of uh, the Personal Democracy Forum, which is an organization that uh, tries to promote uh, openness, transparency, uh, and direct democracy through technology uh, in government. Uh, and uh, he is the author of a recent book uh, about WikiLeaks, uh, which uh, I recommend you check out. Uh, so without further ado, uh, I'm gonna turn it over to Amika, and afterwards we'll have some Q&A, uh, and then uh, an opportunity for people to make announcements, and then uh, feel free to nosh, hang out, and uh, enjoy your time. Thanks, Dan. So uh, we're using a mic because we're podcasting this, right? So um, otherwise it really isn't necessary. Jewish tech is the hashtag if you're tweeting this. And my, and my uh, Twitter handle is MLSIF. Um, so hi, uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, it's, it's great to be here and, and I'm looking forward to a conversation. I didn't really prepare a long talk because uh, I think it's, it would be more interesting to have a dialogue. Um, the first thing I wanted to do before I dive in is just get a sense of uh, who you are. How many of you would describe yourselves as techies who happen to be Jewish? Okay, uh, a little less than half. And, and how many of you would say that you're Jews who use technology or social media in your work? Uh, that's what brings you here. And so there are one or two people who didn't raise their hand at all. Is that possible? Not Jews, but here because there's good food. What? Yeah? Okay, so you're kind of new. You're, you're new to the space, but here to learn. Okay, 
That's actually a, a great reason to come to something like this. Um, so um, let me tell you a little bit of, uh, a tiny bit of my background before I dive in. Um, so uh, I started out as a journalist. Uh, after college, I went to work at The Nation magazine and sort of worked my way up there to uh, as a writer and then as an editor. Um, started with a focus on the Middle East, actually. Um, I wrote my senior thesis at, in college on, on the Peace Now movement in Israel, and that's what led me to my first, uh, I guess, meeting at The Nation magazine with uh, the then editor, Victor Nevesky, because he was interested in that subject. And while I was there, he said, why don't you go check out our intern program? And uh, I ended up spending 13 years there. Um, my uh, uh, first book was about um, the Iraq War. Actually, it was uh, the Gulf War then. That was the first one. Um, and a second book I did uh, later on the Iraq War, two anthologies of readings and, and documents on both of those events. But starting around 1990, my interest shifted into more uh, the American political arena. Um, though I have a very strong personal connection to Israel, I have a lot of family there. I almost made Aliyah there when I was uh, uh, just out of college. That didn't happen, um, but I still maintain a strong connection to the place uh, because of friends and family. Uh, but my own work has moved away from uh, directly writing uh, about the Middle East for the most part. Um, and uh, after I left the nation, I went to work for a group called Public Campaign that works on trying to solve the problem of money and politics in America through uh, advocating for public financing of elections. Um, at the same time, I, did a, I wrote a book about third parties in American politics. I wrote a, another book on um, money in politics that was called, Is That a Politician in Your Pocket? Um, which was a compendium of all the ways that money distorts politics. Um, and around 2002, 2003, I started getting very interested in the way the internet, uh, as it was obviously changing business and culture and media, I, I thought, gee, this is going to hit politics too. And that's when uh, I got involved in helping start Personal Democracy Forum, which kind of grew out of things like the Howard Dean campaign, um, which were the first early signs, at least in the United States, that something big uh, was happening here that was changing uh, the way the political game works. And so I think if there's any common thread in my own work, it's always been on this question of how do we open up the system to make it more um, responsive, to make it more representative, uh, more accountable, more transparent, hopefully produce better outcomes for ordinary people. Um, and I was uh, thinking that I could call this talk why WikiLeaks is good for the Jews, just because that would be a great tweetable title. Um, but I'm not really planning to talk about WikiLeaks, except to say that um, I think it's important to understand it as a symptom of a much larger phenomenon. Um, and that, that it, the larger uh, trend is, is the, uh, the important thing to pay attention to, as opposed to whether or not you like Julian Assange or, or uh, think what he did was ethical. 
the big trend is this gigantic transformation that's underway. And I think it's important to think of it as being as big as the invention of the printing press 500 years ago, um, which revolutionized society because it made it possible for anybody who was literate to read and, and, and analyze books on their own. It was no longer this cloistered uh, monopoly of monks in the church and you know a handful of extremely wealthy people who had access to books. And the first book they printed was the Bible, and which led to uh, the Reformation because now millions of people were reading and interpreting the Bible for themselves. Um, now, f fast forward to today, and it, we're no longer in a situation where only uh, the wealthy have access to a printing press, right? You know, freedom, the old saying was freedom of the press belongs to him who can own one. Now we all own one. Some of you are, are holding your printing presses right now, tapping on them, right? Um, and not only are those things printing presses, but they're, they're networked into a giant internetwork um, that's always on and is every day getting more interwoven. Um, we've never had anything like this before in human history, and it's just a handful of years old. So um, that's the gigantic transformation. Um, now, what, is the, what are the societal effects? Well, I think the first is that um, the people who were formerly known as the audience want to have a hand in the making of the show. Uh, we actually, we want to know what's actually going on, and if necessary, we will put the information together ourselves. The old control over information that used to exist when the creation and spreading of information was expensive to do has all been broken. I see a kind of, hmm, you're, you're skeptical, you have a question? I don't disagree. There's still plenty of information that is still, where there is still monopoly control over it, but the ability to keep that monopoly secure is weakening every day, okay? Um, and the reason is, is because we all can, we're all watching each other. Um, and so our ability to share and expose the, whatever it may be that we think is worth sharing and exposing is now been completely democratized, okay? So people who rely on trading in secrets have to worry more about anybody exposing them, right? Who is Bradley Manning? He's a low-level soldier who happens to be sitting at a computer terminal, you know, somewhere outside of Baghdad, bored out of his mind, who, for reasons we're still not really sure, had a security clearance and decided that also he, he was having a moral uh, quandary because he was told to, uh, supervise a group of, of arrestees who had been circulating leaflets critical of the Maliki government in Iraq. He had the leaflets translated and discovered that all they were doing was accusing the prime minister of corruption, financial corruption. He thought, isn't this why we're in Iraq, to bring democracy to, you know, isn't that a, a, a fundamental 
uh, right of these people to raise these questions. So he asked questions, of, he spoke to his supervisor, his supervisor told him, shut up, keep doing your job, if anything, help us arrest more of these people. And that's when he had his, con you know, his break of conscience. All it takes is one person, uh, the weakest link in any chain of secrecy for that information to start flooding out. Um, and as we're seeing, we are also now living at a time where uh, self-identified hackers like this group Anonymous will go and do things that are even more aggressive about breaking into people's secrets. Um, and, and so I just, whether we like it or not, this is a feature of the new age that we're living in, is the inability to control information as well as we used to. Um, what this means for the people who used to be known as the authorities is that they're no longer as authoritative as they used to be. Um, and this is both good and bad. The good part, I think, is, is that it, it, it levels, it lowers some of that power threshold. It makes somebody who is in a position of high power think, I, what if I get caught, right? Should I do this? Um, if you raise the cost of, or the risk of them being exposed, many people will change their behavior simply because they think they're being watched. I mean, there's lots of social science on this. If you put uh, a tray of cookies out on a table and, you know, say, don't, don't take any, and if you put a little sign above it with a, a person's face on it, fewer people will take the cookies. <laughs> it's hardwired into us. Um, in this new environment, though, if you're an authority, you're also, you have to re-earn your authority every day. And the problem is that very often the authorities that we uh, sort of have to deal with didn't really earn it. They inherited their authority. Um, and they think it's theirs by title or by position uh, as opposed to because they've really earned it by merit. Um, and so authority is breaking down. In, in many, many ways, or new kinds of authority are being created. Um, and what I think is, this is good for anybody who thinks that merit should win over, you know, the other ways that people gain authority. Um, it isn't what school you went to, it isn't who you know, it's actually what you do, what you say, and we can track it, and we can go back and check it. Um, and I think this is, again, a, a feature of this new hyper-networked age. Now, um, what I thought I would try and do is, is uh, peel one more layer in and say, so how is all of this affecting the Jewish world? Um, and here, I, I just have a few observations. Um, I have to say, I'm not an expert on, you know, current American Jewish life. I mean, I'm I certainly am a uh, participating member of the Jewish community. I was, you know, for a few years, I was the president of my little reconstructionist congregation that uh, Ezra is now the rabbi for um, up in uh, Hastings-on-Hudson. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I certainly consider myself a proud to be a Jew, uh, but I'm not observant and, and certainly not a traditional uh, a Jew in, in most senses of the word. Um, and I recently also, uh, I mean, do a lot of different kinds of consulting work 
One of the people, one of the groups we're working with uh, in the last year has been the Avichai Foundation. So I've had a reason to sort of dip a little bit into some aspects of um, the current state of American Jewish life as this online, as this wave of being networked is, is sort of permeating society. And so I, I have a few observations to share, but then it's really, this is where, you know, I assume you know more than me and hopefully we can, you'll educate me or we'll educate each other. Um, the first thing that's really interesting to me is to discover that there really is a Jewish networked public sphere. Um, now the network public sphere is a term um, that's come to be used to describe this new public arena where there are many, many more voices um, being heard uh, and influencing each other. Um, it, the, the term blogosphere only captures part of it um, because it isn't just bloggers, it's also old media, um, and it's also institutions that have themselves begun to be media. Um, because they have a presence online, because they also blog or they also put out information because they link to each other. And so you can begin to see uh, that the, the locus of American Jewish discourse is now something that takes place in a very networked way. If the old address, if the old centers of you know, the American Jewish community were things like the Federation offices in each city and maybe the Jewish Week or one or two, you know, primary media uh, outlets, it's now much more dispersed. Um, and there's actually, uh, there's been some interesting work, I don't know if it's been published uh, yet by some sociologists who have done some mapping of um, particularly where do uh, young American Jews sort of between the ages of 20 and 40, uh, where do they Go. What are the most popular blogs? What are the most uh, popular Jewish news sites or Jewish resource sites? Um, and it's it's very interesting to see this network map. Um, there's one piece that is the Orthodox sector, um, which sort of stands a little bit apart. The sites that tend to link highly to each other, um, but not very much with the more secular sites. This makes sense. Um, but even in the orthodox sector, there's uh, unorthodox kinds of sites that are satire sites, for example, like Frumster, um, that are places that are influential because lots of people link to them, uh, share links from it. You know, it's influencing the conversation, even if it isn't authorized or you know, uh, entirely reverent. Um, there's a, a number of uh, websites that are at the heart of this larger network um, that are really just resource sites. My Jewish Learning, for example, um, uh, Jewish Virtual Library, Shamash, these are, these are places that they just act as hubs of, for information. Um, and you have some of the longstanding organizations that are presences also in the online conversation and lots of new ones, the startups, uh, you know, the Jew schools and the Juicies and the J-dubs and, and, um, and so on. Uh, that's one way to sort of think about the, the, the Jewish public space 
in the United States now. It, it, it's more dispersed. There are more voices competing for attention. Um, and there are these little hubs uh, that serve different versions of, of uh, what people are searching for. Um, I found it really uh, amusing to discover, I think it's Shamash, that like 15% of its traffic just comes from the fact that it has uh, the world's best list of kosher restaurants. <laughs> so if you're searching for kosher restaurant, Shamash is your number one hit in Google. And that, that's 15% of their web traffic. Um, a second way to look at this is like to, to ask where are the big lists um, in terms of where are American Jews concentrated in big email lists. And um, the big ones are things like Chabad and Aish, uh, and then I think J Street, Mazon, Birthright Next, they're all somewhere in the range between 200,000 and 400,000 in size. Um, Something surprises me about this, which is, where are all the Jews? <laughs> um, and, you know, I almost think that there are millions of American Jews who are invisible in the network public sphere in, online. Uh, if you go, for example, on Facebook, um, and you, I think it's safe to assume now that uh, if you're, you know, uh, except for the oldest people in the United States, almost everyone has created a Facebook account, something like 90%. Um, and you, don't, you may not use it all that often, but still, it's like having an address. Uh, and we can talk about whether or not that's a good thing. But um, if you go on Facebook, you can actually query the site to figure out how many people have self-identified in their profile as Jewish. And the number is only about 350,000. This is their advertising tool, okay? So Facebook wants to give you all sorts of ways to slice and dice their users. So one way to do it is to put in how many people say they like, that they either have listed themselves as Jewish or they like Jewish or they like Judaism. It's only about 350,000. This is a shocking number to me. Um, I, my theory is that uh, because we're a minority, um, and because there's a lot of nastiness online, especially in anonymous commenting, that a lot of people simply choose not to say. But that's still a surprisingly low number. I mean, if there's, how many Jews in the United States? Six million? So uh, subtract the two million who are, or the one million who are supposedly too young for Facebook, though Mark Zuckerberg would like to get rid of that. Um, you know, so say there are five million who are eligible to have Facebook accounts, only 350,000 self-identifying as Jews. There's something odd about that. Um, but it isn't just that. If you look at the, the monthly traffic to the most popular American, uh, the most popular Jewish news site is, anybody have a guess? In the U.S. or in Israel? No. Either. Jerusalem Post. 600,000 monthly unique visitors. They claim a million. million. Compete says 600,000. All right, so let's say it's a million. Where's the other four? I mean, so what I, what I take from this... All right, that may be. You know, you know better than me now. Um, so, I, you know, so one big observation here is, the second biggest, first one is, 
the, the, uh, community, the online community or the communal, the discourse, the public discourse is no longer centered on print and it's dispersed into many nodes of influence. Um, there isn't a clear center to it. Uh, the second is that while there are these big lists, there seem to be a lot of Jews not identifying as Jews online or, I mean, and obviously, I'm sure a lot of them are, are there reading smaller things and these numbers do aggregate. But it still does surprise me that even on a site like Facebook, we're not finding more. Um, third observation is, and this is uh, a gross uh, overgeneralization, but um, what I've seen so far about the established Jewish community is the same thing I'm seeing in uh, the non Jewish establishment, which is there's a tremendous amount of fear of all of this, uh, this new technology, this new social media. Um, there's a lot of silos. There's a lot of um, sense of being overwhelmed. And, the, and a lack of capacity development and a, uh, a failure to connect with the younger generation that is searching. Um, and I think that's a, a remains both a, a challenge and an opportunity. Um, but, you know, I think also some of this reaction is because the authorities sense that their authority is being undermined um, and they don't like it. Um, it's scary. But this is why I think this is good for the Jews. Because <laughs> I think the kernel of being Jewish is about questioning authority. I think that's what you know, to take a biblical metaphor, that's what Abraham did when he was smashing the idols, uh, is that he was questioning illegitimate authority. Um, and that that's the DNA. That's like the, the heart of our DNA is that we ask questions. Um, uh, what's the joke? The, the, a Jew is someone who asks, what is a Jew? I, I forget. The previous rabbi uh, from our congregation said that once. Um, but that's, that to me is good. You know, that we would, I would rather live in a space where it's easier to ask and it's easier to speak as opposed to one that's very orderly and structured um, and very stable and almost dead at the same time. So um, I think that the WikiLeaks phenomenon, this phenomenon of information unleashed uh, and authority undermined is fundamentally a good thing. <laughs> and I dare say it's even a Jewish thing. So let me leave you with that. And hopefully that's enough food for thought for conversation and, and uh, take your comments, take your questions. What followed was a very interesting question and answer session with Micah. As we had only one microphone in the room, we are currently working on cleaning up that audio and look forward to putting up that part of the conversation in the weeks ahead. We would love to hear your thoughts about this podcast, so please comment on it at jcastnetwork.org slash jtechmeetup, all one word, or on the Jcast Network Facebook page at facebook.com slash jcastnetwork.